This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. And death, things we tend to put off in life until sometimes it's just too late. And so I rejoice I can have this time with you. I'd like to read again from John 20. I'm going to read what followed what was read earlier. And this is the post-resurrection encounter of the Apostle Thomas with Jesus. I'm going to begin at uh, verse 19 and then jump down verse 24. John 20, verse 19 says, On the evening of that day, that day is what day? It's uh, Easter Sunday, the very first resurrection day. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Probably an understatement. <laughs> but something happened. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Eight days later, as Jewish uh, time was counted. That'd be the next Sunday night. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, once again, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John concludes, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. Let me pray one last time. Lord, you know who is always here and who's listening online and in your grace and providence, we're gathered together. And Lord, I would pray that we wouldn't just hear my voice, but we hear from you that in your grace and mercy and love towards human beings, those who gather here today, uh, you would extend your love. Uh, you know what each of us bring into this room, God. You are the searcher of hearts. Uh, you know some of us are elated to be here, and others are, are glad to help, and others are here for family, and some are visiting maybe the first time. And You know some are hopeless, some are suffering, some have difficulties in life, and 
You know what each of us need. I pray, God, that in this time we share, looking into your word, that you would grant us the mercy of your love, cause your word to have power in our hearts, and, and may your spirit, Lord, open eyes. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, you know, this is a very well-known passage. A lot of people have heard about it, even if they have, you know, don't go to church, what have you. And I enjoy returning to it every handful of years or so, handful of years or so especially at Easter time, and asking more questions of it. And, and every time I see something new in it, something uh, deep about it, I think a lot of people appreciate this story because they can, you know, they can identify with Thomas. Let's face it, you know, he seems, he's a skeptic, and we live in a skeptical age, uh, uh, and uh, we, have, we, we, we live in an age of skepticism about religion. We, we live in an age of skepticism about the past, right? I mean, we're rewriting history and tearing down, uh, you know, statues of heroes from the past. That's the kind of age in which we live. And, you know, I find a lot of contemporary people, uh, they think about ancient people like these, you know, the people we find in the Bible. And, I mean, some of the words sound silly, so they think these ancient people, they, you know, they'd believe anything. Of course they believed the resurrection. They're gullible. They were superstitious people. This was a pre-scientific age. You know, what do these people know? And so to them, Thomas kind of stands out. There's a guy I like. You know, he's a skeptic. He's not going to swallow the whole pill. He, he needs concrete evidence and so forth. Well, I'm here to tell you something. First of all, I'm here to tell you that all of these people were hard to convince. Not just Thomas. They're human beings just like, just like you and me. But I want to say this to you. Perhaps you didn't know this, that particularly these Jewish men and women were hard to believe, to, to convince and bring them to faith. You say, how so? How could that be? Weren't these Jews, didn't these people have the Bible? Didn't they already believe all those Old Testament stories? Didn't they think that God parted the Red Sea? So what's the problem with them believing in the resurrection, you know? Surely they would easily believe they're gullible people. The answer is no. No, not at all. Uh, let me tell you a few reasons why. First of all, some Jews, not all Jews, but some Jews believed in the resurrection, but they believed in the resurrection of all the righteous at the end of history. And not even all Jews believed in that. And, and, and no one was teaching, no one was expecting, no one was writing or talking about God raising one man in the middle of history, not at the end. And that this man was the Messiah. No one was waiting for that or talking about that or thinking about that. So no, they, they weren't gullible. They, they, they were shocked. Uh, by this and you say well wait a minute didn't Jesus raise Lazarus just a week before this he raised Lazarus from the dead and didn't he raise the daughter of Jairus that little girl that had died actually they were resuscitated both of them died again and for good but you see the resurrection and this is this is at the heart of Christian faith the resurrection is not Jesus coming back to life, it's Jesus being raised to a new state, a new status of life. A, a, in, in a resurrection existence, a body that is eternal. And, and the Jews believed that, but they just weren't expecting in the middle of history one man, so. No, no, no. They weren't ready to believe this, they weren't running to believe this. And, and secondly, they struggled with all this because why wouldn't Messiah have to be raised from the dead anyway? Messiah's not supposed to die. <laughs> And certainly not dying on a cross. Why? Because their Bible, their Old Testament said, cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. 
They didn't make a distinction between being crucified on a cross and hanging on a tree, and so there's just no way Messiah could be uh, hung on a, on a cross. So therefore, ergo, what? Jesus is not the Messiah. Uh, he, he couldn't be the Messiah. How could the Messiah die? And so forth. You know, and they witnessed the gruesome death of Jesus. Not all of them, some of them, certainly they all heard about it. The one man that they'd put all their hopes in, some of them for three years had been following Jesus. They put all their hopes in him, and then there he is killed in this gruesome manner on a cross. Yeah. Now, this small band of Jewish men and women, my friends, they weren't, they weren't ready to believe. They weren't ready to believe. They weren't eager to believe. They weren't even expecting. Mary went to the tomb to look for what? A dead Jesus. Not a resurrected Jesus, you see. None of them were looking for that. And they were, what were they? They were disillusioned, they were disheartened, and in fact, you heard read, they were frightened. They were behind locked doors. Why? They saw what they did to Jesus. They saw him drag Jesus away. Who's next? Who's next? And their main spokesman, Peter, what had he done? Well, he was so scared, he lied three times they even knew Jesus. So no, these people aren't some superstitious, gullible, ancient people who are ready to believe any sort of myth and story who are surely ready to believe in the resurrection. No one's ready to believe in the resurrection like that. So what changed? What changed? What took them so quickly from unbelief to believe? It was the resurrection. And furthermore, we, we should think about this. The Jews, I want to stress this, the Jews... Uh, were the last people on earth that anyone would expect would worship a man, a human being, as God. The last people on earth that anyone would expect would worship a human being, a man, as God. Why is that? Well, because they were monotheists. Everyone else believed in plenty of gods, right? The Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, everyone had multiple gods. But the Jews for 1,500 years would say the Shema O Israel. Israel, Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, he is one. Over and over, he is one. They had yet to understand through the light of the life of Christ in the New Testament that yes, God is one in essence, meaning God is God. He's one in the stuff that makes God God, but he's He's three in another sense, a different sense. He's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that this is why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've come from heaven, he said. None of that broke through, you see. And so what took these Jewish men and women from being cowards to being courageous? Some of them became martyrs within weeks. They they. they they changed 1,500 years of worshiping God alone at the temple on Saturday to worshiping a man on Sunday. What, what happened? What transformed them? What changed is they saw Jesus alive. They saw the resurrected Christ, not a ghost. Not the Easter faith of imagination. You know, it's good to think he rose if that helps you. They saw him. Now, the question I asked is why would John close with this account? I've been chewing on this all week, this time, this year. In other words, why, 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 why end your, 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 your gospel story of the life of Jesus 
with this story about Thomas, saying, I won't believe, you know. Look what he said in verse 30 there. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. A sign is a miracle that pointed to his identity, that he's the son of God. He said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You know, in other words, he had a whole slew of things he could have chosen. You know, some New Testament scholars estimate that what John covers in his gospel is only 21 to 22 days of the life of Jesus. That's it, 21 to 22 days of the life of Jesus. And he spent three years with Jesus, and he said he did many other miracles, and here he ends with Thomas, you know. Say, why would you do that? Well, what's the next thing he says? These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, you see, the Son of God. In other words, the story of Thomas has also been written, just like the others, has been written for what? Why, why am I telling you about Thomas, he says, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, to what end? And that in believing, you might have life in his name, you see. And so the question we ask ourselves this morning, on this Easter Sunday, some 2,000 years plus later, is what can we learn from this account of Thomas's encounter with the risen Jesus that will help us believe? What can we learn from the spiritual pilgrimage of Thomas from unbeliever to worshiper in one week? What can we learn from that that we might believe, or if you're already a Christian, you're a believer, that we might, we might worship him all the more profoundly and understand him? So what I want to do is point out three, uh, three, um, three aspects of, of, of genuine faith that we can take from this account, Okay. And the first one is this, is that Christian faith, we learn this, Christian faith does not require seeing or touching the risen Jesus. Saving faith, Christian faith, faith that gives me eternal life, does not require that I see or touch Jesus. What did Jesus say to him? Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's countless millions of people for the last 2,000 years. And that's many of you in this room. Some of you at away who are watching. You are blessed. Why? Because you have not seen, and yet you have believed. And we don't know a whole lot about Thomas, you know. There's not much written about him in the gospel accounts, but uh, the very few times he appears, he always feels kind of pessimistic, you know. <laughs> He's somewhat of a cynical, you know, guy. You know, when Jesus said he was going up to Jerusalem, he said, yeah, let's follow him and go die with him, you know. He's a cynic. And so we've labeled him what? We've labeled him Doubting Thomas. You know what? The, the scriptures nowhere gives him that epitaph. Nowhere gives him the title Doubting Thomas. And to be precise, his struggle was not with doubt. I know that some of your translations may say stop doubting for example, but you see the, 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 the Greek term in their time that means doubt is, is different. It's not the one he uses here. Doubt, doubt literally means, in, in the original language, it means to be of two minds about something. To be of two minds about something. So doubt refers to what? Doubt refers to an unsettled state between belief and unbelief. 
that, that's a doubt. You're unsettled about this. You're, you have questions. You're thinking. And as a, as, as a side note, just to let me say this to all of you, uh, doubts may be serious, but they're no, they don't have to be terminal. And secondly, the church is a great place to be when you have doubts. <laughs> and it should be safe to be able to talk about it, to say, I'm, I'm torn between these two things, you see. But that really wasn't Thomas's problem. If we're going to label him, he's unbelieving Thomas, not doubting Thomas. He settled in unbelief. What Jesus says in verse 27, as, as John writes it, literally is this, stop being unbelieving. That's what he tells him. Stop being unbelieving and be believing. And Thomas himself says, I'm not, I'm not teetering, man. I am settled. What do you say in verse 25? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in the side, I will never believe. I don't know that he said it like that, but... <laughs> But there is no more stronger, emphatic way to say something negative, to negate something in the Greek New Testament than this. It is the strongest negation. In other words, he's saying something like this. Listen, there is no prospect whatsoever of my ever believing. No way. Unless I get to see unless I get to touch. In other words, does that sound like a guy who's teetering? No. <laughs> this man is what? He's settled He's settled. He's made up his mind. I remember being like that. Some of you may have come here today like that. I can, I can relate to that. I remember being like that. When my friend came to faith and we were at the end of high school, I can remember for a couple years of wrestling, talking back and forth with him. That's exactly the kind of thing I would say. You can believe whatever you want. Glad it helps you. I will never believe in this. Here I am, huh? God has a sense of humor. Well, to be fair, now let's be fair to Thomas for a second. What was Thomas asking for? He was asking for everything they were given the Sunday before. All right? What did, what did the verse 19 says? Jesus stood in their midst and said, see my hands, look at me. Another gospel says they thought, that, they thought he was a ghost, so he said, does anybody got anything to eat? <laughs> and they gave him a fish. Why do they record things like that? You know, so that we can understand this was a real body. He was really there, you see. And so Thomas wasn't there when he first came. He's asking for that same experience. Um, and, and Jesus says to him, this is a rebuke now when he says, stop being unbelieving, but believe. He rebukes him. For demanding what? I demand a personal concrete experience of a miracle before I'm going to believe. I remember thinking that. I remember sitting in my friend's car as we were reading the Gospel of John for, for like three months and talking about, is there a God? And I, I remember we would talk to each other and we'd just say, if only he would part the sky right now for the two of us, you know. <laughs> then we'd know it's all real, you know. Well, so Jesus... He rebukes him, but for you and me, for our benefit, what he does is he makes clear, you don't have to see me or touch me to be forgiven and receive eternal life. That's good news, right? 
He says, you believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet do believe. And the word that John uses here for blessed is that word means to be spoken well of and it results in a sense of joy. What he's saying is, look, you're blessed, Thomas. I mean, Thomas was blessed to be there in that moment and have that experience, but he's saying there's a greater joy that those experience that's different than yours. There is a different quality of joy that is experienced by those who do not see and yet believe. And why is that? It's because faith is a gift of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so to believe is to go from unbeliever to believer with a sense of knowing. It's not that I logically came to this conclusion and ha, I've proven there is a God. No, it's that suddenly you now believe. And you believe why? Because of God's gift of, of faith in your heart. And that creates what? A joy that's inexpressible. A joy that says, wow. I remember preaching the gospel at a youth camp uh, uh, early in my ministry and, and struggling to relate to kids. I had been t- teaching adults for a while already, and these were all junior hires. And I was going, man, why am I quoting a U.S. News World and Report, you know? What's wrong with me, man? So I went back to my room. I went back to my room, and I was in my cabin, and I said, I got to rewrite this whole thing. I mean, that's stupid. And so I went out, and I just plain as I could, I shared my testimony and I explained the gospel like I'm doing with you today. And it was about an hour later that uh, one of the cabin counselors just brought up these two girls, twins. And they both came to me. They were simultaneously brought to faith by God's grace. And they, you know what they felt? Blessed. They had a joy that was inexpressible. Their Their eyes were lit up like... Like something definitely happened in her life. So he's saying, more blessed, you see. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. You know, if you're a member of our church, we've been going through the letter of 1 Peter. You remember what Peter said there to people who were suffering? They're Christians who were actually were being hurt because of their faith in Jesus, remember? And what he said to them, this is interesting because Peter saw Jesus after the resurrection. But Peter said to them, 1 Peter 1.8, he says, though you have not seen him. You know, Peter's thinking, Bless you guys, because you haven't seen him, but I did. I had breakfast with him, I talked to him, I touched him. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, I know you don't see him now in the midst of your suffering, in in the midst of your pain, you don't now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice, remember that? He said, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Remember we talked about that and we said, what kind of, what kind of joy is that? It's the kind of joy that uh, Paul and Silas, the apostle, was, uh, felt when they were imprisoned for Jesus and they suddenly started singing hymns. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And that's every Christian in this room and it could be every one of you if you come to faith in Christ. Okay, so another fair question here then. Okay, so... We don't have to see him to believe. And is more blessed to, to see, or there's at least a different quality of, of joy and blessing to, to not see and yet believe. Why does Jesus give Thomas what he was demanding? Why does he show him himself and rebuke him at the same time? What's going on here? You know, Here's what John's telling us. Remind yourself of this. Thomas did not need to see or touch Jesus to be a believer. 
but he did need to see him to be an apostle. The apostles were all to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And Tom missed out. He wasn't there. And so part of what John's telling all of us is this. Listen, the apostles were given the uh, red carpet treatment, so to speak, right? He appeared to all of them, including Thomas, you see. Even he is telling you the story that he experienced, you see. Every apostle would be an eyewitness, and the faith of all who would believe from that point till the time of the apostles' death till now, we're talking some 2,000 years, the faith of all who would believe in Christ and be forgiven and given eternal life, the hope of resurrection, it would all depend on what? Not on seeing Jesus. It all depend on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And so John's telling us, Thomas as well. He saw him. We all saw him. We saw him repeatedly. Scripture tells us that they spent 40 days on and off meeting with the resurrected Jesus, you see. All right, so the first thing we learn is what? We learn that to be a Christian, to have Christian faith, you don't need God to open the skies. You don't need a miracle to take place in your life. You don't need to see him. You don't need to touch him. But you do need, and here's the second point, Christian's faith does involve what? It involves trusting the apostles' testimony. Trusting what the apostles said about Jesus' resurrection and his death, but especially the resurrection this morning. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Picture this, guys. For one week from Sunday to Sunday, for one week, Thomas was in the same place that you and I are in. For one week, Thomas was in the same place that you and I are in right now. And what's that? He, he had to believe the apostles' testimony, only he was in a better place, I'd say, because it's been 2,000 years and the apostles' testimony is written down. He had the apostles, right? The rest of them were there. This is Peter talking to him. This is James, his buddy. This is John, his buddy. And what were they saying to him? Uh, the, the tense of the verb is that repeatedly. They were repeatedly saying, look, man, we saw the Lord. We saw him. We've seen the Lord. These are his friends. You can imagine the kind of energy that was going on in that room at that time. Wouldn't there be that energy? Picture yourself there for just a minute, please. Just take yourself there. For three years, you all followed this man. Your hopes were high. You thought he was Messiah. Then he is slaughtered on a cross. Everyone is disillusioned. Everyone's disheartened. You're confused. You feel ripped off. You feel like it's all a lie. You know, in the life, at the time of Jesus, there were several false messiahs. Here we go again, just another liar. And then you miss out on this one meeting. <laughs> And all your friends who are there saying, you won't believe it. We saw the Lord. And he says, you're right. I'm not going to believe it. And picture the energy, the joy, the intensity. There's no way Peter's going to say, hey, Thomas, by the way, we saw the Lord. You know. <laughs> I mean, he, uh, please put yourself there, right? This is, this is just a, an amazing event, you see. And, 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 and Thomas hears all this. And so what does he have to do? He has to trust the testimony of the apostles but he doesn't. He's not doubting. He's not teetering. We're told he's what? In a hardened state of unbelief. I will by no means believe unless I get a personal experience. You see, 
There is content to the faith, okay? There is content to the Christian faith, and that content includes not only the incarnation of Jesus, his life, his sufferings, but also his resurrection. There's content to the faith, and that content is given to us through the scriptures, and the New Testament scriptures have been written by the apostles, you see. We have the apostolic testimony. And at the heart of that content is what? Is the resurrection of Jesus. It's not some optional appendage, you know? You can't stop at he died. (laughs) That's not a good ending. (laughs) Uh, He he was crucified. He was buried. Okay. There was was two other guys crucified with him on that day. And guess what happened to them? They were buried. (laughs) You see, the the resurrection is, is, is core to the Christian faith. That is the apostolic testimony. In verse 9 that was read earlier, it said there that they had not yet understood that he was supposed to rise from the dead. So no one was looking for it. No one was expecting it. Paul, Paul, who, who, who became an apostle later through a direct revelation like Thomas, wrote about the resurrection in that letter to the Corinthian church. There's content to the faith and Somehow, someone at this church at Corinth that Paul had founded started saying things like, well, maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus wasn't raised. Kind of think of it. I've never actually seen Jesus raised, and I've never seen anybody raised from the dead, come to think of it. And so Paul hears of it, and he writes to them, and he says, listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you've got problems. If he didn't rise from the dead then no one's going to rise from the dead. You are still in your sin, your guilt. And he says, you know what? If he didn't rise from the dead, that makes me and you a bunch of liars. Why? Because we were going around telling people he did rise from the dead. (laughs) And so we're just a bunch of liars. No, no, no. He did rise from the dead. You can't negotiate that, he tells them. And so he writes to them. When he comes to this chapter, he tells them it's at the very core of the content of the Christian faith. Listen, he says, I'm going to read some verses from there. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Gospel means good news. That I preached to you, which you received. You received this and in which you stand. And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What's he saying? He says, unless you just, you didn't really believe. And then he says, here it is. Here's what I delivered to you. Here is the good news in a nutshell. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Here is the essence of Christianity. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that's not just a fact. In other words, that we understand what's it mean for our sins. What's the implication of that? And that this was written in the scriptures for centuries. So he says, point one, I delivered to you this news, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. Why mention buried? Because the scriptures mention uh, buried, and they also, he needs to clarify, he didn't faint He didn't faint. He wasn't some ghost. He died. He was buried. And then he says, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Meaning, just as prophecies and scriptures for centuries had predicted. 
But he didn't stop there. The resurrection, yeah, that's the capstone. He was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Then he says, he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. So he appeared to Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, why would he say that? He's saying, if you're struggling trusting me, why don't you go find one of those 500? Why don't you go talk to a few of those 500? If you don't, you're not going to take my word anymore. He appeared to 500 of us. Go talk to some of them, you see. And then he goes on to say that he appeared to James. That's the Lord's flesh and blood brother, son of Joseph and Mary. And he goes on to say he appeared to me, lastly, like one untimely born. Remember, he was against Jesus, but then he appeared to him as well. So what's Paul saying? He's saying the resurrection of Jesus is not some appendage that's optional if you're going to talk about what is the good news. There's no good news. There's absolutely nothing good about Jesus dying unless there is a resurrection. That's what he's getting at. They died as martyrs, you see. Within a matter of weeks, Peter, who denied Jesus three times, this is why we're told this, who hid and ran for his life, within a matter of a few weeks, what did he do? He stood up before the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, and boldly preached Jesus and was ready to be imprisoned. What changed? The resurrection. That's what changed him, you see. So you and I will never see the resurrected Jesus in this life, but the apostles are the testimony, their transformation is the evidence. The evidence that Jews who would never worship a man began to worship a man as God. And listen, the Roman historians, the Jewish historians of the first century, they note, they write, not Christians, they write this sect, this sect called little Christians, they gather on the evening to worship a man as God. That's what they said. So it's clear this was a powerful uh, transformation. And so John writes, he says, these things I'm telling you and the story of Thomas I'm including in here, for what end? So that you might believe. Believe what? The apostle's testimony. And what is the apostle's testimony? That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. That's what he's saying. And what do we have to believe about Jesus? In other words, what is the content? What's it mean he, is, he was crucified, that he died for our sins? What that means is that we are under condemnation for our universal rebellion of God. But God came into history himself in the person of his son. He pierced history and at a point in time, he added humanity to himself. That is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And he came to achieve what you and I can never do for ourselves. And that is what? Make ourselves right with a holy God. Atone for our own sin, our own guilt. We can never do that, you see. And so he came into this world. He said, I was sent from heaven. I came to give my life a ransom for many. And what's that mean? It means that he came to endure what you and I ought to endure, that is the wrath of God, and what some will endure forever. He came to endure what you and I deserve and do that as a substitute, a perfect substitute, to live the life that you ought to live and I ought to live, but never will. He was a lamb without blemish. And then die the death that we deserve. And on that cross, he experienced the condemnation we deserve. Scripture says he made him, God made him, Jesus, he made him who knew no sin, 
to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. An, inter- an exchange. An exchange. I can be made right not by handing in my own record, which incidentally, no matter how good you've been, is never going to be good enough. Be you perfect as your Father in heaven's perfect. Don't find comfort in comparing yourself to other wackos on this earth. And so you could either hand in your record for your life, religious, irreligious, whatever it is, or you could stand under the record of Jesus. His righteousness becomes yours and his sacrifice becomes the payment for your sins. So I've written these things that you may believe that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he died for you and he took what you deserve upon himself and that was enough to satisfy God in heaven. I I know I've illustrated various ways. I I haven't shared this one with you in some time. Some of you who have been here maybe several years you might remember. You know, as a young man I used to ride a bike a lot um, without a helmet. And Sherry and I got debates a lot about that the older I got. <laughs> and uh, until I, f- I finally read a story in a magazine of a man who, who also never wore a helmet until his wife convinced him. And so he went out and bought a helmet. And, and wouldn't you know it, one week later, this guy has a tremendous fall going at high speed. And he falls, you guessed it, right on his head. But the helmet saved his life. And helmets... Cycling helmets, motorcycle helmets, helmets are designed for exactly that purpose. Think about it. They're designed for that very moment to spread the impact over the whole helmet and to absorb the energy, to absorb the energy of that hit so that your skull won't receive it. And that is a picture of what the gospel is saying to you, that the condemnation that we deserve, that I deserve, was the hit that Jesus took on our behalf. He absorbed it so that you'd be spared it. Scripture says there's no condemnation ever. Again, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it didn't end there, did it? He rose from the dead. Anyone could say, listen to me, I'm here to die for your sins. And look, they got himself in trouble. He claimed to be a king, and there he is, he's crucified. But see, the resurrection is God's certification, beloved. There are all kinds of false messiahs. There are so many religious leaders that have existed, and they're all, you know where they all are? They're dust now, they're dirt. But he's alive. And so the resurrection is God's certification of several things. First of all, it's like a paid in full. It's a certification stamp that says what he said, that that he was dying for your sins, paid in full, certified. He has conquered sin and death. He has risen from the dead. And the resurrection, the real historical bodily resurrection, is also a pledge to you and me. A pledge of what? This life isn't all there is. You don't live 60, 70, some good 80, some even better 90, and then what? And then uh, what's 90 years compared to thousands and thousands in eternity? The, the, the pledge of the resurrection is there is more, much more. And you will be raised from the dead as he was raised. He is the prototype, if you would. The first fruit, says scriptures. And so it's a pledge 
of the fact that there's hope beyond this life. It means more to me now. I've buried my grandfather. I've buried my grandmother. I shared the gospel with them. They died in faith, I believe. I buried my dad last year, as you know. And this is the hope that we don't live 70 years in, but that there's more. And the more, the more has been secured to be good, a good more with him. And so we are to what? We don't need to see him to believe, but we do need to accept the apostles' testimony. They gave their life for it. They were transformed because of it. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and that's not like some spell. That means you've been brought to a place where you say, like Thomas, Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now the last thing, three things we learn. The last one, very simply, is you don't need to see him to believe. You do need to receive the apostles' testimony about the resurrection, about Jesus, and all that that means. You also need to understand that Christian faith involves embracing him, receiving him as Lord and God, which is what they did, right? What happened to Thomas? He went from unbeliever, again, not teeter-tottering, he went from an outright rejecter to a worshiper. You notice Thomas doesn't tell us that he touched him? He doesn't tell us, so I can't, I can't say for sure. This is not scripture. But I'd rather think that when he saw him, he didn't touch him. He, I think he just fell to his knees. I picture of Thomas just saying, no, no, it's not necessary, Lord. And falling to his knees, saying, my Lord, my God. It's true. The Son of God walked with me for three years, died for me, and has been raised from the dead. My Lord and my God. And so Christian faith is, is embracing him as Lord and as God and worshiping him as such. It's a tremendous transformation. There's, this is the highest confession of faith in the New Testament. There's no others. I mean, there's maybe others that are equal. But to believe is also to worship. You can't have one without the other. And, and so what happened, to the, what happened to the people of God? After 1,500 years of, of the, the, the Old Testament people of God worshiping God on the seventh day, Saturday, suddenly this small group of Jews meet on the first day from their reckoning, Sunday, and they worship a man as God. And then it's what's called what? The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. The day the Lord rose from the dead. And so he received that. He, he embraced him that way. And I want to say to you that it's a personal belief. Notice he doesn't say, wow, the Lord and the God. No, no. What's he say, beloved? He says, my Lord, my God. This is a personal reception of him. Uh, in his claims, in his identity of who he is and what he's done. 
I know a lot of people try to discount this. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God in that sense, they say, oh, this is just a statement of shock, kind of like, you know, OMG, whoa, <laughs> Here, who are you? No. This is a full-orbed, full-orbed reception of not just content, because Christian faith is, is more than just agreeing with a bunch of propositions. Christian faith is entrusting yourself to a person. To a person. If I say, would, do you think your cousin could take care of your daughter? You know, if you're a parent, you say, I think she could. Will you leave your daughter with her? Mm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what, what's going on there? Well, you've, you have ascended mentally to some proposition. Could she take care of her well? Yeah. Will you do it? Will you do it, you see? And so to say, I think Jesus is a historical person. There's no doubting it. Roman historians wrote about him. Jewish historians wrote about him. These were people that rejected him. I mean, he was a good man. He was a great teacher. Um, boy, he's, his teachings have sure affected a whole bunch of people over the ages. And, you know, and yeah, but that's different than saying, is he your Lord? Is he your God? It's, it's, you know, the, it's interesting that the New Testament writers, and John in particular, almost coined a new word to, as they tried to explain faith. The Greek verb for faith, one of them, or belief is pistio, and, and that can also be used just to agree with facts. And so John, especially throughout his gospel, when he uses it of faith in Christ, he's always adding prepositions. He's trying to make clear it's belief upon a person. It's believing into a person. He, he keeps connecting these prepositions. Why? Because he's trying to say it's not just would you trust him with your life. Is it trust him with your life? You see? It's give yourself to him. Entrust yourself to him. Lean your weight upon him and trust him. Trust that his words are true, that what he says about eternity and death is true, what, a, what the apostles died to say about him is true. You don't need to see him or touch him to be forgiven and receive eternal life. You do need to accept an, um, the apostle's testimony about him. He died for your sins. Your sin put him there. You, see? you need to accept that. It was, it was your Lying is your cheating, your, your selfishness, your envy. Mine, mine. That's what put him there. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf. Scripture says he, 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 he bore our sins in his body on the cross. The just for the unjust. The righteous one for the unrighteous. So you need to believe the apostle's testimony that he is the Messiah who died for your sins. And then you need to embrace him personally and receive him as your Lord as God. And so Thomas gives us this record, you see. Excuse me. John gives us this record of Thomas to, to teach us these things. This is why I'm including this story, he says, so that you might believe like Thomas believed. But you don't need to see. You don't need to touch like so many. This Easter might be the first time for some of you you've heard the gospel explain this this, this directly, listen, I'm, thank you for being here. 
I'm privileged, I'm honored, the fact that you came and give us this time. What I'm sharing with you is the absolute foundation of Christianity and what has transformed the lives of millions, countless of people throughout the centuries. I'm here to tell you there's more to life than these 60, 70, whatever years you might live. Scripture says it's appointed for man, that is human beings, it's appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. We could either stand on our own record or we could stand in his. And God, God is ready to receive you and embrace you and grant you his righteousness. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, says Jesus. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest from these questions about is there life, is death, or what? I'll give you rest from the struggles you may have. As, is my religion enough? I'll give you rest from wondering if I die, what is going to happen? I'll give you rest. Trust in me. That's what he says to each and every one of you. You know, someone raised a question. They said, if he's gone, why does he still have scars? Why wounds in his hands still if he had this, the resurrection body? Why? Listen, both Luke and in his gospel, and John in his gospel include that small detail, what? That his resurrection body, though different, still had some continuity with who he was, and it particularly, he still has the scars. Listen, they are not a defect. They're his glory. And they, are, they will remain on him to, into eternity. Why? To remind us of several things. First of all, to remind you and me what? It's finished. The price was paid. Scripture said he was pierced for our transgressions. Look here, he says, I was pierced. It's done. The Jesus with scars is, is there to remind you and me forever that the price has been paid. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The scars are on him to remind us that he does understand us. This is important. God is not only transcendent, but he knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to hurt. Scripture said he was made like us. He became one of us in every way apart from sin. And that means that the scars remind you and me, and this is especially to you as Christians today, I want you to think, he was raised from the dead. He appeared to the disciples, but he still has scars. Why? To remind you, listen, he is a sympathetic high priest. He knows what it's like to be rejected, to be abandoned by your best friends, to be stabbed in the back. He understands pain. He understands that relationships break down. He understands all of that. The scars are there to remind you and me. You can talk to God about your problems. You can bring him your pain and reflect on it and know that he understands. John Stott, a great theologian, he, he's, he's with the Lord now. He once wrote this. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. Because in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Maybe an overstatement, but nevertheless. The God you and I know in Christ Jesus, not immune to our pain, and that's why we go to him with all our struggles. And lastly, the scars are to remind you what? Of the extent of God's love. We doubt God's love at times. 
because we base it on our capacity to be obedient, to follow in his steps. But scripture says God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were rejectors, God-haters, Christ died for us, you see. And so those scars repeatedly say to you, to this extent, I love you. The one who knows everything about you that other people don't know the truth about you, everything. The one who knows absolutely everything about you loved you to this extent, he says. So trust that I'll keep loving you. The great hymn writer, um, Matthew Bridges, reflected on that. And he wrote the hymn, Crown Him With Many Crowns. And the second verse goes like this. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside. Rich wounds, yet visible above. In beauty glorified. You see, they're not they're not some sort of defect. They are his glory. Put it this way. Jesus wasn't drugged towards the cross. He wasn't made to go kicking and screaming. What did he say? He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He said, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. No one takes it from me. So that full arc comes to its completion in what? The resurrection of Jesus. Let me say again, Jesus stands before you today not like he stood before Thomas. He's not here saying, put your hand here. Touch me. But I want to say to you from the bottom of my heart, what he is saying to you today is listen to me. Hear me, listen to the testimony of the apostles and listen to this. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die and we will, you will, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and life. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And God's word is trustworthy. Someone stands before you today. 42 years ago, he was a mocker. And today I stand testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. I pray God will bless you. I pray that you would, wherever you stand, whether you think, I don't know that I'm as hardened as Thomas was there. Maybe I am just a doubter. I've been wrestling between things. I've been hearing things and I hear one thing from the world, I hear one thing from science, I hear one thing from my parents, I hear one thing from you. Wherever you are, that you would seek God and ask him. If he's real, open my eyes, God, please help me understand the truth. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.